just as farmed animals, um, many of them live lives that seem so full of suffering that um, that might outweigh the happiness. And we think those animals would likely choose to not be born into those lives at all if they had the choice. Um, it seems plausible that certain wild animal populations could experience similar conditions. So this seems particularly likely for species that have um, large numbers of offspring, the majority of which die very early. Um, and then those that do survive um, don't live that much longer. And so it's possible that uh, the life of a frog isn't long enough and happy enough to outweigh the suffering of all the tadpoles that died along the way. Hi, my name is Amy. And my name is James. And this is How I Learned to Love Shrimp, a podcast about promising ways to help animals and build the animal advocacy movement. What is wild animal welfare? And more importantly, why should we care about it? This week, we interviewed Cameron Myers Shorb, who's the executive director of Wild Animal Initiative, who are accelerating the growth of wild animal welfare science. Cameron helps us to understand a really complex topic on wild animal suffering, capacities for pain and pleasure, and how human intervention could help. We ask broad questions for listeners who are new to this area, as well as deep diving into the specifics for those wanting to hear more, all of which accumulated into what we think is a really great episode. A particularly poignant takeaway for me is how we can and should harness our collective passion for farmed animal advocacy and extend it to the suffering of wild animals. This is the first time we've tried a longer episode due to the breadth and depth of this particular topic, something we plan to do in the future for those episodes that need a bit of a deeper dive. But as always, let us know what you think. We really value your feedback. We're joined today by Cameron Meyer-Shorb, who's the Executive Director of Wild Animal Initiative, a nonprofit dedicated to improving the lives of animals by accelerating the growth of wild animal welfare science. Welcome, Cameron. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to learn more about this topic. I know James and I are uh, very interested to, to deep dive into this. Um, and I'd love to know initially, what's an animal-related view you've changed your mind on recently? And why did you have your mind changed? Yeah. Um, something I've changed my mind about is I've developed a much greater appreciation for the intellectual novelty of wild animal welfare science. Um, so we can in a bit, you know, get a bit more into what that means. But um, basically, as you can imagine, I'm working at Wild Animal Initiative because I care deeply about animals and I want to make an impact. And uh, long story short, that's how I got to, to work on this cause area. And I um, had been seeing the science as uh, really an, an instrumental way to have an impact. Um, and so I had been really thinking about the, the applied versions of that science. Um, and the more I've dug into it and the more I've talked with um, scientists at the cutting edge of the field, the more I've come to appreciate that not only is this useful instrumentally as an applied science, but it's also just extremely conceptually, intellectually interesting and novel. And so um, even if you were, you know, a like total nerd with no altruism whatsoever, I still think this would be a super cool unexplored terrain to, to mm. dive into. Um, and uh yeah, I guess as, as someone who prides myself on my altruism, that, that perspective didn't occur to me before. But but now that I've seen it, I'm I'm psyched. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Yeah, I can imagine there's lots of interesting questions in terms of how do you even understand or measure how animals feel in the wild, ones you probably never interact with? How do you understand their happiness or their suffering? Yeah, I think 
you're right, it's a, a big, hard problem to solve. Um, I guess before we get into all that juicy stuff, I want to ask you, so how did you end up in this field? How did you end up caring about wild animal welfare and at Wild Animal Initiative? If you'll indulge me, I think I'll give a bit of the long version because um, especially people who've known me for a long time, I mean, he's like, Cam, the animal guy, he likes animals. Of course, he's working at an animal nonprofit. Um, and uh, I'm just very insulted by that because that's <laughs> not why I'm doing it. I had a long winding rave and um, <laughs> tried a bunch of different things first. Um, so yeah, you know, when I was little, I always loved animals um, and pretty quickly learned that if you loved animals, what you should be concerned about is habitat loss and extinction. Mm. Um, and um, that's pretty scary stuff for a kid. Like I cried myself to sleep thinking about climate change multiple wow. times. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and that might explain why I got pretty radicalized pretty fast. And um, by like middle school, high school, I was convinced that the, the best thing we could do for animals would be to just um, roll back society entirely and go back to hunter-gatherer lifestyles. Um, and so I put off going to college so that I could learn how to hunt and gather and farm. Um, and yeah, I was, I was really <laughs> invested in, in that approach. And I, I mentioned that in part because um, part of this worldview of, of how you help animals in this way um, was getting to be very comfortable with personally killing and harming animals myself. Um, and I integrated this wow. into, you know, this larger sense of, oh, this is part of the circle of life. And, you know, I'd, I'd pray to the chicken before I um, cut her throat, but I, I did personally kill or help process about a thousand animals over the course of a year. Um, wow. And again, that all felt like virtue to me. And were you counting them the whole time? No, but um, I, I came up with that number by looking back through my journal, how many days okay. was I in the processing shed and how many chickens do we normally process or rabbits or wow. whatever it was. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so um, all that is to say that my, my ways of, of thinking about animals have, have changed a lot. And uh, another major pivot point was in college reading animal liberation um, and, uh, and also taking a class on the religions of South Asia and looking at how Buddhism and Jainism um, have different sort of ethical frameworks for what classes of beings you are responsible for, for treating well and um, what kinds of things accrue karma. Um, that really got me thinking more about like, why, why do I assign value to, to different animals and, um, and what does that mean? And that's when I got to thinking about factory farming more. Um, and I'd always known about factory farming, always thought it was an issue. Um, but I think that framework of anti-speciesism of, um, you know, we should care about individuals' experiences to the extent that they feel them and however, you know, small or big those things matter to them. And species should not inherently be a, a morally relevant consideration, just like sex or race is not an uh, intrinsically morally relevant consideration. Um, if you start looking at things that way, then factory farming looks like not just, you know, another thing that progressives should care about, but like a tremendous moral harm, you know, a, something that defines our age and we should work to prevent. So um, uh, even then, I think there was still another bend where I learned about effective altruism and that um, uh, kind of challenged my commitment to my um, conservation principles. Um, it, not directly, but just it, it got me thinking about the connection between um, altruism and personal interest and um, realize that 
I'd always thought of myself who wanted to do as much good as I can, but I also was always imagining doing it by like working with animals, which is fun. Um, <laughs> and um, like I, I hadn't quite tried to disentangle those. Um, so for a while, I thought maybe I should work on global health. Uh, but then I <laughs> came back to, to factory farming as um, something that seemed like a objectively, even if I wasn't interested in animals, a huge issue um, and very neglected and tractable. Um, and so I worked on uh, a ballot campaign um, around factory farming and worked at the Good Food Institute for a while. Um, so here we come to the final bend in the road, um, which is somewhere along that way. Um, I heard an argument for wild animal welfare as I now think about it, um, specifically the idea that um, wild animals might not have um, always enjoyable lives in the wild and that humans might be able to responsibly intervene to help them. Um, and I found that set of ideas uh, originally quite repulsive uh, because, again, I was, I was used to this view of nature as like this sacred circle of life. Um, nice. And so I spent several years trying to think of counter arguments and then finally um, like gave up, wasn't able to <laughs> um, yeah. and decided this is a pretty big problem and people should work on it. Wow. At that time, so when did you first see the argument and when did you kind of commit to going, OK, wow, I should spend more of my life working on this? One of the first memorable times I encountered this was um, at a conference in uh, 2016 when Oscar Orta, um, who helps run animal ethics, was giving a talk about wild animal welfare. Um, he basically laid out this case that um, uh, animals in the wild, you know, have, they have to face disease and um, malnourishment and um, extreme weather events. You know, they're basically living lives that in human context we might call um, poverty or, or extreme poverty. Like the, um, their survival and the survival of their young ones is, is just not guaranteed. It is often a, a struggle, um, which is not to say it's without joys or, or necessarily net negative, but um, it's just the kind of thing that we wouldn't tolerate in, in human contexts. So Oscar Orta was was giving this talk and um, my blood was boiling as I was listening to the talk. And so I, I went right up to him afterwards and <laughs> and I gave all the counter arguments I could think of. I was like, well, doesn't biodiversity have value? And if you ignore these things, if you intervene, don't you risk interrupting ecosystem services, which could in turn harm wild animal welfare? And I was expecting him to have some dumb answer. But unfortunately, he had a very wise one, which is just, yes, those are good questions. You sound like you might be able to help <laughs> us answer them. Would you please help? <laughs> um, just did not see that coming exactly <laughs> um, that's interesting yeah. um, and, then, and then that kind of became the the rest of the story is uh, like who is going to ask these questions and uh, how do you research them and so then that raises the question like should we do anything about it well i think um morally i was already committed to um the view that if you're walking by a shallow pond and a strange child is drowning in the pond, um, you have to go save the child. You, you just have mm. to. Saying that you weren't the one who pushed the kid in is not um, a, a justification at all. Um, and so similarly, uh, we are able to have uh, immense power over ecosystems and species, and we don't yet know how to wield that perfectly, but um, we might be able to do things. And so we should look into whether we can do things. Um, and yeah, that last bit, should we, should we intervene in nature? That was uh, kind of the, the hardest part for me to get on board with. Um, again, because I was used to thinking of nature as like so sacred and humans purely as interrupters of it. Um, and yeah, yeah what, what really ended up changing my mind there was really hearing about Wild Animal Initiative. It's so interesting. I feel like everyone probably to some extent grows up with an awareness of 
wild animal welfare, whether that's something like you were saying about extinction or, um, you know, like the birds or, um, you know, there's, there's various sort of charitable bodies that look into different species. And I think where, you know, there's, there's something about respecting nature when you're a child and the animals that live in the wild. And, um, it's really interesting that you spoke about, uh, the, the kind of your initial objections to that, um, and how perhaps that's similar to factory farming and uh, all of the kind of different denials that we have about um, all the sort of non-vegans have about the, the treatment of animals in those conditions. And a lot of the time it's just about education, right? That we just don't know enough about the topic. Um, and that is certainly the case for me in this conversation um, on wild animal welfare <laughs> and James. Um, so I'd love to know in your sort of um, definition, you know, what is wild animal welfare? How do you um, define that? And, and in real terms, what that means. We define welfare as the something like the net value of an individual's subjective experiences at a given time or over a period of time. Um, you could also talk about the welfare of a population. Um, the population itself doesn't have welfare, but each of the individuals in that population um, have their own level of happiness or sadness. And you can imagine aggregating that in, in some way. Yeah, so welfare is kind of the the sum of all of the, the qualities of experience. Um, uh, so you you could think of it as as pain or suffering, but um, also qualitatively different things like joy and boredom and curiosity and frustration. Um, those might all feed into it. Um, and then, of course, there are like major physical determinants of of how well an animal feels at a, a given time. Um, and so health and environmental factors, all those things factor into welfare, um, but we see them as you know, external inputs to the, the thing that we're ultimately concerned about. Um, health is not in of itself um, uh, part of welfare. Yeah, and then I think what follows from that or what important thing to note about that is the way that um, welfare is not necessarily the same as um, the like stability or size of a population. Um, it's not necessarily the same as um, biodiversity or ecosystem functioning. Um, the kinds of things that conservation biology for decades has been measuring are primarily at the species and community or ecosystem level. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand species, community, and ecosystem level dynamics, but understand them um, in terms of the experiences of the individuals who are members of those um, populations and communities. Um, so again, this is uh, a scientific framework, but it is um, informed by or contextualized by the ethical idea of anti-speciesism. Um, like, what if you were trying to understand a system without some um, preconceived set of priorities about who in that system matters. What if you're just trying to look through the eyes of the animals in that system? Um, what would that look like? What would that feel like? Basically, conservation is the idea that, or it's maybe a, a pillar, pretty similar view in that you're studying the impact of, of like how, let's say, some environmental factors, such as deforestation effects, biodiversity on a species level. So it's only caring about species as a whole group, whereas the wild animal welfare view is you're actually approaching maybe the same idea of how does deforestation affect wild animals, but on like an individual by individual level. So it's actually looking at how do their experiences matter rather than just some amorphous group of people that we don't really care about. Is, is that broadly right? Yeah. And, and to make that a little more concrete, like what that might mean is um, uh, 
a more welfare-centered view would want to, if we're understanding the effect of some action, um, would want to understand the effect um, on all members of the community. So not just on the rarest species, but also on the mm. common species. Um, so often when there are environmental changes, there are both winners and losers. Um, we would want to get a better sense of that. So um, understanding the experiences of common species is one of the priorities of uh, wild animal welfare. Um, understanding the experiences of juveniles is a version of that. You know, every animal is going to be a juvenile. Mm. And, and by ju- juveniles, y- you mean young species, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, young members of a population. Um, uh, you know, everyone is going to uh, be alive for their first day. Not everyone's going to survive to their second day or their second year. Um, if you're interested in things at a species level, sometimes the experiences of juveniles are relevant, but um, often what you want to know are things more like the um, number of breeding pairs in a population that'll uh, be more directly relevant to the population Mm. dynamics. Um, But you can have a population of a given size that maintains the same size by having um, one chick fly out of the nest for each breeding pair um, and two chicks die along the way, or you could have just one chick born and fly out of the nest and no others born and no die, dying along the way. Like that would be a, a very different welfare circumstance, um, but a kind of comparable one from a purely population uh, mindset. Mm-hmm. And what do you think this is informing, I guess, in the long term? So Wild Animal Initiative is collating this kind of resource, this um, scientific resource based on the welfare of these animals in the wild. Um, what is the the sense of the, the sort of why, um, you know, as we were saying before about human intervention and um, that being, you know, potentially uh, problematic in some senses. Um, what's the real sort of your opinion on um, the long term reasons on on why we should care about this issue? The, the most fundamental answer is altruism. Um, like, why should we care about anyone? Um, mm. I think right. we just should. There's, there's definitely more sophisticated meta-ethics, um, <laughs> but uh, I would say it boils down to, um, I think we should. And, and as long as we're caring about uh, anyone, you know, we should care about the, the largest numbers of, of individuals. And, um, and, and that's something that was really hugely influential for me coming to wild animal welfare and being so um, motivated to work on it, despite all the complexities, um, is that we are talking about really huge numbers. So um, we're thinking about vertebrates alone, so not even turning our mind to to shrimp at all, um, but just thinking about mammals, reptiles, amphibians, fish. Um, uh, The numbers of vertebrates in the wild um, are about at least 100 times the total number of humans and farmed animals. Um, And so if you're alive on earth and you're walking around and you have opinions about that, if you're feeling things, you are almost definitely a wild animal. It would be an extreme exception, one out of 100 chance that you're on a farm or in a house. Wow. It's funny because I I guess people, I think, I, I know I as like a predominantly farm animal advocate, have said stuff like, oh, well, the number of farmed animals is huge. It's 70 billion, right? R- roughly, give or take, yeah. 80 billion animals yeah. like farmed and killed every year. And obviously it's higher for some wild species. But so you're saying even, it's like 100 times that is the number of just vertebrates alone in the wild. So it's like, if you're into that kind of numbers-based argument, it's just like, it, it's very compelling. Yeah, um, perhaps a thousand times, perhaps more. Yeah. So it, it's much bigger. Uh, and then... What about in terms of invertebrates? How big does that number look? And yeah, what's that scale like? 
So honestly, I forget the number for invertebrates, um, but it's mind-bogglingly big. Um, like this is, uh, yeah, on my list of things that I know I still don't understand and would like to try to understand, and I don't know how I'm going to start. Um, but uh, yeah, the the proportion is is even huger. Um, it's 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 harder to tell with invertebrates. There's even more variety in species and in potential capacity for suffering. You know invertebrates broadly would capture everything from um, shrimp and other decapods, which we have uh, relatively high confidence are likely to be sentient, um, all the way down to zooplankton, which are single-sided organisms that I, I think are not. Um, but even mm. if we're just looking at arthropods, um, I, which would be, uh, you know, the like ants, creepy crawly bugs. Yeah, that we're yeah, thinking yeah, of, yeah. right? So um, uh, exoskeletons, that kind of thing. Um, uh, I think we're looking at numbers of like a, at least a thousand times again, as many um, arthropods as there are vertebrates. Wow. So th I think that's a big part of, of why we should care about it is, um, uh, again, we could go into how, how complicated it is and, and how mm. tractable it, it may or may not be. Um, but ultimately, I think this is the direction that we want history to face is like try to figure out, given that humans have largely lifted ourselves out of poverty. We haven't finished the job, but many humans live much better lives than we were able to a couple hundred years ago. Uh, is there a way we can extend some of that wealth and prosperity to at least some of the other inhabitants of this planet? Yeah, for sure. I think one concern um, that I'm sure you hear all the time and perhaps even held these views yourself in those earlier days um, is that following on from the research and the science that you undertake and us gaining the knowledge is that perhaps that leads to interventions that uh, could help one wild animal. Um, but due to the the system and, and the ways that that works, it could harm another. Um, so obviously we need to avoid this outcome if, if the goal is to um, improve lives, improve welfare. How do you even go about thinking about interventions like that when there's so many knock-on effects that sometimes are, are not even, the information is just not even available for us to predict um, within the, the whole chain of, um, of improving one life? I think of maybe three main ways of dealing with that indirect effect problem. Um, the first one is avoid it by acting in small, um, concrete, well-contained ways. Um, so an example of this is um, contraception seems like a very promising uh, approach to reducing wild animal suffering uh, in populations where the population is being regulated by the um, competition for resources. So if the reason the population is stable is that um, babies are being born at the same rate that they're competing with each other for food and starving to death, um, then you can just reduce the number of babies being born and have uh, the same amount of food going around to uh, a fewer number of animals and and having fewer juveniles die along the way. Um, yeah, that And makes there's sense. actually a, a certain level at which you can do that in which you, you don't change the total population level. You just sort of shift the average age to um, a healthy adult instead of many starving juveniles. But even in that case, they're not something maybe like, oh, let, let's say now there's less like competitive, I guess, like selection or like evolution, evolutionary selection between the different juveniles. So then maybe some of the traits that would have been selected for otherwise aren't selected. So actually there is some indirect impact on that species long term that is hard to measure, but it's just slightly more diffuse. Is that like possible? Yeah, I, 
I think that's totally possible um, and definitely one of the kinds of things we'd want to study. Um, uh, I guess I offer this as an example of something where I think the the risk of those things seems smaller than in many other cases. Um, cool. uh, or, or generally, maybe the, the broader set here would be um, cases where you can improve the welfare of animals without changing the total population size um, are less likely to have knock-on effects to other species. Um, another way you can deal with this problem is by avoiding knock-on effects by acting at a very large scale. Um, so perhaps we're thinking about um, a tract of land that used to be used for uh, pasture for um, beef cattle and now is being restored to forest. Um, perhaps ideally, you know, in the future we'd have um, carbon sequestration if, uh, incentive programs that would incentivize farmers to, to do things like this. And uh, farmer turning a field to forest, there are different kinds of forests that you could plant and they would support different uh, communities of, of animals and uh, different um, sizes of populations. Um, and we already know that, you know, there's like a... Uh, a coniferous forest exists in this way, and you generally expect this number of animals and this type of animals to be here. And deciduous forests exist in this way, you generally expect this number of animals and this type of animals to be here. Um, so the the math is messier there, but I, I think we'll have opportunities um, eventually once we can make those kinds of decisions um, to make kind of landscape scale decisions um, mm. where there there are lots of effects uh, involved, um, but you expect them to largely be contained to the habitat you're managing. Yeah. I find those types of interventions definitely easier to process where it's something that has already had human intervention that might have meant a loss of biodiversity in the first place. So we've like potentially chopped something down to make room for this field to grow cattle. And then we're, we're sort of like re replanting um, and, and changing that landscape back to, to something that was perhaps more um, originally how that that land would have functioned and for those wild animals that would exist within it. Right. And then a third way of dealing with this risk of having indirect effects um, is to simply not care about it for the short term. Um, uh, yeah, like, like, like they, it might <laughs> <Right>? be worthwhile. <laughs> it might be worthwhile to do things that might have net negative effects uh, in the short term for the sake of developing our capacity to use these tools to manage populations in this way. Um, so rather than just sitting paralyzed forever, um, we might want to try out some interventions definitely at a smaller scale and definitely with the um, mechanisms in place to, to monitor and evaluate the impact of those. Um, but I think the, the standard doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you can't act until you're 100% certain of all the effects. Mm. Um, because I think it's important to note that um, Wild animal welfare is not unique in having the risk of all these indirect effects on many other species. Um, any other large change you make to the world would have that risk, you know, um, provide more bed nets to people who will then survive more and go on to live different lives, um, you know, reducing yeah. farming. And then that changes the demand for different kinds of crops and what happens to that croplands like that. All of that will end up affecting wild animals and wild animal welfare interventions are unique in trying to actually do the rest of the math and, um, you know, figure out those those impacts. Um, but again, I, I think we don't have to um, do all of the math before starting on some parts of our homework. Yeah, I, mean, I think definitely what you said is there's definitely like information value to be gleaned. And if you don't do anything, you'll never learn anything. And therefore, you can't have an, any idea of what's happening. But I think your, your second point, I think, is really, I think, useful or good for everyone else to think about, because I think it's, yeah, so 
when, let's say, farmed animal advocates promote diet change, that means people eat less animals and that means maybe less cropland will be used for, I don't know, beef grazing. And yeah, that land will be changed. Therefore, it will affect wild animals. And how much do farmed animal advocates think about how our interventions affect wild animals? Probably, I would say, zero. And I think once you open that Pandora's box, it's a real... Uh, I mean, I, I tried once. I got frightened and put it back away because it's so. It's so. <laughs> you, you don't want to go there, guys. It's, it's intense. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's yeah. like, why should all owners should be on you, people doing well and welfare work, to be like, hey, you need to figure this all out, even though, like you said, everyone else is also doing work that impacts the same animals. And how are we thinking about it? So I think yeah, that's a very fair, I'll say, challenge and thing for everyone else to think about. And and I think farmed animal advocacy is a great example of. Um, like pushing forward on a path that we're very confident in, um, even though we don't know the full effects of it, at least at yeah. certain, bounded at certain timescales, right? Um, it is really, really hard to imagine a world that improve that is devoting resources to improving wild animal welfare at scale and also still so speciesist that we um, are, you know, operating factory farming at, at large scales. Um, that might work, but it, it, it seems like to have the sort of social and political backing um, that you would need, that that kind of cognitive dissonance would um, would be existential. And so um, mm. I think that ending factory farming probably is a necessary precondition to um, largely improving wild animal welfare, again, at, at very large scales. Um, but in the short term, um, you know, we might be jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, it might be that um, certain kinds of cropland are actually better for wild animal welfare than what would come to place it once there's no longer demand for those feed crops. Um, we don't actually know. And I think this is just a good example of like, we, we don't actually know the full effects, but we have a pretty good sense that this is a tool we want in our toolbox or part of what victory looks like. And so we're going to work on this part. We're going to end factory farming. Um, and if that creates some other messes, we'll clean those up too. Mm. I mean, maybe just to make that time a bit more con concrete, because I'm worried maybe if we're abstract or I don't think I would have understood this if we had this conversation like a few months ago. Um, the idea is that like diet change, for example, pasture land that's mainly grass is much less biodiverse, has many less wild animals living on it. And if it goes into something that's slightly more uh, biodiverse, so like just a great number of like invertebrates or insects or whoever living on it, then actually there's more wild animals. And if you think some of those wild animals in particular have uh lives that are negative overall and full of more suffering than pleasure then actually you've increased the amount of suffering maybe globe like overall by going from this pasture land to this biodiverse land that just has more life living in it is that kind of the change that you see like the pathway that would work yeah that's that's one possible mechanism and i, I appreciate you slowing down because i think that concept is um a pretty important one and unusual one in many kinds of wild animal welfare research. So the idea that just as farmed animals, um, many of them live lives that seem so full of suffering that um, that might outweigh the happiness. And we think those animals would likely choose to not be born into those lives at all if they had the choice. Um, it seems plausible that certain wild animal populations could experience similar conditions. So this seems particularly likely for species that have um, large numbers of offspring, the majority of which die very early. Um, and then those that do survive um, don't live that much longer. And so it's possible that uh, the life of a frog isn't long enough and happy enough to outweigh the suffering of all the tadpoles that died along the way. Um, so I, I want to be really clear that I do not have an empirical stance on this. Um, this is mm. possible. It could 
totally operate in, in the other direction. And this could be something that would be interesting to talk about more. Um, but yeah, one thing that distinguishes many wild animal welfare questions from um, traditional uh, assumptions that have been made in the context of wildlife management uh, is is just opening up this possibility that we we don't actually know for sure um, what wild animals lives are like in the wild and some animals might not want their populations increased um, and we should uh, we should be open-minded about that and, and we should look into that and um, not simply you know paternalistically uh, force the assumption that you know the way things used to be, nature as it was, is necessarily the the best outcome for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Are you recommending interventions at this point? You're like collating the science, but are you? Uh, do you have like concrete interventions that you are recommending? For the most part, no, with some exceptions. Um, so it's probably a, a useful place to to step back and note that our theory of change at Wild Animal Initiative is that there are so many open questions and. Um, answering these empirical questions is likely going to be a rate limiting part of progress on wild animal welfare. And so what we as an organization are focused on is um, not even just doing that research ourselves, but trying to support the growth of a research community around these things um, to support the establishment of an academic field as a vehicle for um, continuously attracting talent and funding um, and influencing the thinking of policymakers around questions of wild animal welfare. Um, so that's mostly what we're working on and we can talk more about what that looks like um, with respect to uh, interventions. Um, so again, sort of near term on the ground interventions um, are just not the thing that we're optimizing for. Um, I do think that there are some things that, that can be quite useful. Um, the one that we have explored the most and I think are closest to recommending would be things along the lines of um, contraception, especially in um, mm. contexts where populations are already being controlled by humans with lethal methods. So thinking about rats or pigeons in cities, um, and there are already um, products on the market available for these. Um, that seems like replacing lethal control with contraceptive control could be a um, reliable intervention. Um, that being said, we have also recently run a uh, a grant round inviting proposals for more near-term interventions um, and doing some pilot studies on those. So I'm excited to see the results of um, of that uh, process. And I think we'll have some more um, ideas in the hopper and um, research projects on the way uh, a few months from now. And do you think those near-termist um, interventions are also just raising the profile of wild animal uh, welfare work? Is that why you're starting to maybe think about prioritizing that more in those uh, research grant uh, opportunities? Exactly. Um, I, of course, am excited about the way that these things could improve the lives of dozens or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of wild animals. Um, but I'm really, really excited about the ways they could um inform science and um, invite more policymaking uh, at scales that could eventually affect millions and billions of or trillions of animals. Um, so yeah, I think even when we try to divide things into research and direct intervention, um, they actually are uh, you know, affecting each other. And um, I think supporting this, this positive cycle of greater understanding and capacity to action in part through trying to act. Mm. And then I think that's a good example of an intervention that I think maybe I wouldn't necessarily classify as a wild animal welfare one because, you know, in it, I think the right term, correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
rats and pigeons like liminal species so they're wild animals they're living like on the boundaries of like human civilization and kind of like nature out at large whatever whatever that means so i think there's a there's that class of animals that maybe we can affect more easily and like you said we're already managing in some ways through very painful like rendicide that kills rats in kind of awful ways and then there's kind of everything else is there any, any other classifications of how we can think about wild animals or do you kind of break it up into like species and orders or how do you kind of think about the wild animals is like a big blob of animals you want to help. Multiple ways you could slice it. I guess at first I, I think it is, uh, yeah, liminal animals is one useful category, especially when thinking about interventions. Um, and I think what's uh, useful there is, is not necessarily that um, rats or pigeons in cities are super biologically distinct from rats or pigeons um, in environments with less human intervention, um, but rather their systems in which we already have the infrastructure to manage and monitor these populations and they're operating in relatively simpler communities with fewer other species that they they might affect and so um uh kind of heavily managed human spaces are ones where uh it's just particularly convenient and i think safe to run these pilot experiments um but then you could apply these methods out in wild context as well to populations that are um, resource limited, um, but not managed by humans. Um, yeah, other than that, I think, you know, big categories we think about, again, lots of ways you could slice it. I, I think we, we think about animals that are, um, you know, similar taxonomic groups. So like mammals and fish might behave uh, very differently. Um, fish is an interesting example because that's actually not just one taxonomic group but that's sort of a um you know uh functional of species uh, exactly yeah body yeah. type and, and environment where there's there's lots of similarities um so honestly maybe the the best answer is uh we don't uh break up animals by groups as much as many other parts of the animal advocacy movement do um because of where we are in the research um we're often thinking about things more conceptually. So we break up research in terms of um, three big questions, one being, how do we measure the welfare of animals in the wild? Uh, another big set of questions being, what are their lives actually like? Um, you know, how much suffering or happiness is there? And what are the causes of that? And how does that vary within a population and across species? Um, and then the, the third big chunk is, um, what might we be able to do about that, right? So that's that's the thinking about how to apply that to interventions. Um, but again, the the categories we use most are um, kind of conceptual categories guiding research questions and uniting similar or complementary research methodologies, um, which hopefully could be applicable to many different um, uh, species, uh, you know, ultimately. And to maybe rewind a tiny bit back to like the why as well, I think you made a good point in terms of it's not necessarily that you're I think you're not convinced that let's say the majority of wild animals actually have lives that have more suffering than pleasure or roughly called net negative lives but it's actually they, they could they could do it's a possibility and that you know that possibility is so important you know because there's so many of them that we should take this very seriously especially given there's like you know probably less than a handful of charities dedicated to working on wild animal welfare. Is that kind of the key crux? It's like, even if we're not sure, the possibility is still so important given the numbers, we should dedicate at least a good, like some fraction of our resources. Yeah, I think um, that's that's a great example of, of one key uncertainty and, and one that could um, like 
really have have huge bearing on what kinds of interventions we think are helpful versus harmful. Um, and then, of course, there are um, plenty of other uncertainties, like um, which animals are actually sentient, um, and yeah, you, that that question of what their lives are like in, in the wild. Um, you know, positive and negative is not the only way to slice that. You know good and better um or bad and worse are also really relevant differences yeah. so um yeah we just have really uh really little sense of of how we should go about prioritizing things here um and so um yeah given that when we're talking about wild animals we're talking about 99 percent of us on earth um we're yeah kind of trying to do some of the the first exploration into um understanding how 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 can we help here? Who needs it most, and what might we be able to do? Um, and understanding that while we've asked questions before about um, conservation or management of natural resources, the questions of um, how do we do what animals would ask of us if they can, uh, that is actually a set of questions that people really have not asked before. And so um, this part is uh, very new and very underexplored. Mm. And in terms of the main levers for actually changing wild animal welfare like overall i think i can think of one which is population one which is like the individual animals well-being are there any of the like main levers that you guys think about in terms of how you would actually improve kind of overall wild animal welfare i can imagine it operating at a, a bunch of different scales um at the individual and population scale you know i can imagine things like um providing oral vaccines against common and particularly harmful diseases um Oral vaccines have already been developed for some diseases like rabies and distributed in, in some contexts for the benefit of humans and livestock. Um, but what if we really tried to optimize that for, for the animals out there? Like it seems like the kind of population level public health for a wider public um, could be largely impactful. Um, then you can also imagine things that are targeted at uh, changing specific ways that humans interact with the environment. Um, so maybe that's ocean noise, maybe that is um, how we affect ocean fish populations by our fishing actions. Maybe it's um, different agricultural techniques. These are all things where we might be able to, to modify what mm. we're doing. Um, and then, yeah, at some of the larger scales would be at that um, landscape or ecosystem scale of thinking about how um, our, um, you know, climate change policies or our building codes or um, our you know, carbon sequestration incentive schemes are in incentivizing or leading to the, um, you know, destruction or creation of uh, different kinds of habitats and um, which might we want more of. Um, yeah, that'd be kind of a, maybe one of the largest scales you could operate at. Mm -hmm. Cool. Makes sense. Thank you. Those examples were very, very useful because, yeah, I think it sometimes feels a bit abstract talk in terms of, you know, what does, how do we even intervene? How do we improve wild animals' lives? And I think you know, tangible things like, you know, reducing disease or um, like the amount of po population competing for resources. Um, and, and I want to, basically, I, I read this one paper and I watched this great video that I will link below um, by someone called Heather Browning. And she makes the point that animals in the wild, while they do have negative sensations, like you've kind of spoken about in terms of whether it's thirst or hunger or um being killed by prey and disease, various different things that could happen. There's also most of the time, but not all the time, kind of counteracting positive sensations such that, you know, you feel thirsty, but then you get water and then you feel happy, or at least somewhat satisfied. And same with hunger, you, uh, you eat and you're happy. 
but yeah, what are your thoughts on that in terms of actually there could be a significant amount of positive like sensations experienced by wild animals that maybe outweigh the negative ones? I'm really glad you mentioned this paper. I love this paper. Um, uh, Heather Browning and, and Walter Bike do a lot of great work. And um, I think it's important to note that even in this paper, um, Heather and Walter are not trying to make uh, like kind of bottom line empirical claims about what the balance is. Um, they're explicitly back away from that. And they say, we, we don't know what the answer is, but these are some things that you should consider. Um, and so I think this is a great example of what it looks like to have a well-functioning research community and an academic field is you have some mm. people putting forth ideas and then other people coming in and critiquing them and kind of collectively through this process, building our knowledge base. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't have a ton more to add on the object level of uh, are animals happy or are animals sad, but uh, I I totally agree with all the points that uh, Heather and Walter make here that these do seem like things that, that could make um, animal lives much better than you might think they are if, if you are, if you've been practicing this like especially negative, um, pessimistic view of, of seeing wild animals. How do you manage the trade-off between this kind of um, focus on suffering focused ethics? So like making a life terrible to like not so bad versus one that's good to being like great um how do you feel like you assess that trade-off well the animal initiative as an organization doesn't have a specific position on, on these kinds of ethical questions um i think we're interested in supporting the growth of a field that can um inform many different ethical systems um, and so uh we are particularly interested in, in much of our work in um, supporting breadth before we support depth. Um, and part of that is understanding um, both the negative experiences animals have and the positive experiences animals have, because they, they do mm. seem like they um, could all uh, you know, inform the ultimate equation and, and what the bottom line is. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, personally, I think my guess is that it's often more cost effective to find examples of extreme suffering and alleviate them. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm not sure that's always going to be the case. Um, so I think it is uh, really important to uh, develop these methods to understand the situations from the animal's own points of view, and I think that invo involves both their positive points of view and their and their negative points of view. Yeah, yeah. Was there anything else from this paper that stood out for you, James, as a kind of novice, like approaching this topic and and learning more about those positive effects? Was there anything else that stood out? Yeah, I'll, I'll add the uh, Cameron to your answer as well. Um, that in a way, I think the uh, you know what we spoke about previously that even if there are some positive effects, you know, still the possibility of negative. I think, like you're saying, Heather and Walter weren't saying definitively this is the case. So I think the argument still rests on the possibility of the world animal welfare welfare being negative and huge is still enough that we should you know plow on with doing the relevant research. Um, but otherwise, I mean, yeah, I think there's a couple of the points that maybe I'll, I'll mention in paper. So I guess. Yeah, I definitely recommend everyone reading it. And also the, the video is great, which we'll link both. But I think so. one of the points was about there being kind of countervailing positive sensations. The second point was um, about, you know, the, the deaths of these animals, even though they can be kind of brutal in the case of predation, maybe you just literally get ripped apart by a larger animal, which is obviously awful. That can often be short, like the like the death, you know, if it's a brutal death, you'd hope it's going to end pretty quickly. Otherwise, that doesn't really make sense. If you kind of get like eaten, that, that's game over. It takes hopefully some seconds. And maybe if this animal's life is on the order of, um, I don't know, weeks, months, 
maybe even years, actually that kind of really intense bit of suffering at the end of their life is a pretty small fraction of their overall life. I guess, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that question? I think that it's a really interesting area to look into more. Um, I wish I had more insights on how to study it, but um, yeah, I think one, the the question of how we trade off between pleasure and pain is is something that I don't think we have a good concept for, for others. Um, even within humans, even in my own life, I feel like I don't have a very yeah. refined sense of this. And I would like to experiment on myself more. Like how many pinpricks is a pizza worth? Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I think this is also an example of um, a domain where our first guess might be very different from the reality. So if you just like watch a video of someone getting torn apart by a crocodile, then um, that looks awful. And you can imagine that being like near infinite pain or something. Um, but uh, there's a famous account by a scholar whose name I'm forgetting about her experience getting attacked by a crocodile um, uh, who uh, I believe like um, you know, attacked her and let her go and then attacked her again three separate times um, in the course oh, of, wow. a, of a minute. She's struggling for her life. And she says she does not remember any feelings of pain in those moments. Um, and you can imagine that being the case for evolutionary mechanisms, like like you said, James, that's a, um, you know, a, a phase shift, a, a qualitatively very different uh, kind of circumstance to be in than the circumstance of like, walking up to a pond where there might be crocodiles, that's a time where it might be very useful to to feel a kind of tightening in your chest as fear. But maybe once you're in the jaws of a crocodile, uh, you know, those sorts of um, incentives are just not as useful or not as relevant. Instead, your body's going into shock or fight or flight or you're, you're gearing up for other kinds of actions. So um, you can imagine how um, we might not be imagining this right. And um, we you know, it'd be great to develop uh, forms of welfare measurement that could uh, assess uh, a range of different circumstances. Mm. You need to send us that that paper because that sounds insane. Yeah, that wow. just sounds like the most is, yeah, bonkers thing I've heard. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I, I will link it below because that just sounds like, well, the most like crazy, but worthwhile thing to read. So yeah, please do send us if you find it. Um, but actually, I, I can have a follow-up question based on that because you said there's, you know, how do we trade off pleasure and pain? Actually, I realized it's something in the question I asked also about trading off kind of like intense suffering, maybe in a short period of time versus like longer term kind of chronic suffering, which may be more like disease mm -hmm. or like hunger or thirst. And yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Either like which one you think might be bigger or easier to address or anything in that ballpark? My intuitions are informed by my loose memory of something I think I read um, when I was learning more about um, uh, global health and development in the human context, where an important metric is um, quality's quality adjusted life years. Um, this is a, a way to try to measure like the burden of disease um, uh, by getting a sense of not only how many people are affected, but how intense is the effect. Um, and an issue that there was, and maybe this has been fixed in the um, estimation of quality adjusted life years, is that um, for a long time, many people were developing the, um, the metrics here or the, the benchmarks based on surveying people, like how bad would it be for you to have back pain for a year? How bad would it be for you to have uh, lose an arm for a year or to lose two arms? Um, and 
subsequent research has found that when you compare the results um, from surveying a general population to surveying people who actually have those ailments, um, people are often quite bad at predicting how bad different ailments are. Um, and a general mm -hmm. trend does seem to be that people seem to overestimate the negative impact of um, large acute changes. So things like losing an arm um, might be extremely painful, might be extremely distressing and could require huge life changes. Um, but then once you make those huge life changes, um, those people live rich, happy lives that are comparable to others. Um, whereas having moderate back pain when you wake up every single morning for every day of your life, um, that actually is something that uh, deeply affects people's happiness. And you might not think that at first from a survey. So uh, mm. So that kind of informs my intuition that um, when we you know, take our first glimpse at animals in the wild, we might um, overreact to what look like intense things and underreact to less dramatic things like just being cold and wet for a while might really, really suck. Well, uh, I just can't get over now how difficult it feels like where we haven't even figured out, I think, really good ways of understanding, you know, human happiness and well-being. And we, we can talk to people and like to do these surveys and get them to self-report and then we can compare them to one another. And, you know, even in that realm, we're making like very, very like, I would say slow or like uncertain progress. And, and then we come to the animal issue where people you know animals can't say how they feel and how they're affected by things and their preferences and yeah i, I guess that seems like a huge daunting question is how do we do it and i guess yeah yeah like how optimistic do you feel that we'll ever have like good enough stuff yeah how do you feel about this kind of challenge going forwards i do feel pretty optimistic i do often get in in this loop and um what i think of sometimes is um this uh philosophical thought experiment by an ancient Greek philosopher, Zeno, which has been called Zeno's paradox. Um, and one form of it is like, if you're running a race and you're trying to get to the finish line, before you can get there, you have to get halfway there. And then before you can get from halfway there to all the way there, you have to get, you have to cover half of the next distance and then half of the remaining distance and half of the remaining distance after that. Um, and so there's like an, an infinite number of goals you need to achieve before you can get to the finish line. And so it seems logically like you shouldn't be able to get there. Um, turns out the mathematical answer to this is pretty easy. It's like, oh, actually, this is um, a uh, like geometric pattern. And the, um, the sum of these halves just approaches one, not infinity. <laughs> um, and it's fine. As we all know, it's, it's fine. <laughs> you can get places, um, even though <laughs> you have to cross infinite checkpoints, right? Um, and I think maybe the wild animal welfare version of that is like, oh my gosh, how can we ever know how bad it is to like get eaten by a crocodile? It's like, well, we do know what makes dogs wag their tails, and we're very confident that tail wagging is a good sign. Um, and yeah, we like know most people probably don't want to have rabies, and most people do like having plenty of food to eat. Um, and these things are probably generalizable across huge swaths of the animal population. Um, and so I think this is kind of reflected in how we approach our research and the grants we make um, is where we're trying to seed progress on many different fronts at once. So trying to help people get better at measuring welfare while also funding projects that are trying to assess the welfare impacts of certain things using what we know are pretty shitty measures, but like at least it's a measure. It's a way to figure some stuff out. Um, and again, you don't have to figure out every single thing before you figure out everything else. Mm. Um, you can kind of get progressively better at getting clearer and clearer ideas of what's actually going on. Seems like a really good opportunity to segue into 
wild animal initiatives work um and your main wheelhouse is research as you've spoken to um just now and then you've alluded to the the grant giving and support services for other researchers could you just touch on that a little more um in terms of those service offerings so right i would characterize our our work as broadly trying to optimize for what we um so much jokingly called fieldiness. So trying to support the growth of an academic field. Um, this isn't something you can do top <laughs> down and there's no clear definition of what exactly a field is. Um, but you know, when we look at our, our impact plan and develop our metrics, the, the things we're generally trying to approximate with those metrics is fieldiness. Like how much are we getting toward a you know cohesive, self-sustaining, self-identifying um, group of people and institutions and ideas um, that's likely to carry this project forward and um, continue to attract more people and resources. So three main ways we're trying to do that, um, like you said, are through our grants, our research, and our services. Um, so our grant making has been supported by Open Philanthropy, and that is where we um, issue calls for proposals on a given topic at a time, and then um, we you know review the proposals we get and we make grants to the researchers who we think are most likely to contribute to the field in, in these areas. Um, and these range from, I think our smallest grants are around $10,000 to our largest ones have been around $300,000. Um, so depending on the, the topic and the team depends a lot um, what kind of scale we're, we're giving there. And these for individuals or institutions, kind of anyone can apply? These are for um, uh, people who are doing research that I guess, contribute to the academic research environment. So this is typically researchers at um, uh, universities, but sometimes it's also researchers at nonprofits who are, um, you know, publishing their uh, findings in peer-reviewed journals and going to the same kind of conferences, you know, as long as they're part of the same intellectual ecosystem. Um, that's mm -hmm. what we're, we're aiming to support. Um, many of these researchers are um, what we call early career researchers. So um, people who are doing their PhDs or their postdoctoral research. Um, so that's after right. you get your PhD, but before you have a um, kind of, you know, faculty position at a university. Um, our hypothesis now, we're, we're doing some more to test this, but our hypothesis is that supporting early career researchers is kind of a sweet spot of finding people who have already decided that they're going to devote their career to this certain area of science. Um, but still mm. have a lot of flexibility in what direction they go in. So that's our grants program. Um, our research program is uh, where we try to hold up our end of the bargain or do our own research and um, have something <laughs> to bring to the table ourselves. Um, so that's that's partly because we think there are certain kinds of questions that um, we think we're well positioned to answer or other academics are less likely to be interested in. And how big is your research team? So right now we have, I suppose, three people working full-time on research, another three or four who often contribute to that. Um, and I think we are um, likely to expand our research team um, in the coming years because, um, as I've said, I, I think we've developed a, a better sense of um, trying to support this community is likely not just something we can do from the outside. We also want to be asking critical questions and like finding those research roadblocks ourselves and um, yeah, having substantive things to, to bring to the table, to talk about at conferences, to find collaborators for and um, do field building through that research process. Mm. Uh, what are some examples of research that you guys are likely to fund or would fund and also some of you do yourself? 
th these projects might illustrate the the span of, of the kind of work we support. So um, one kind of, uh, or a project that we have supported is um, Yale Boonenkamp and colleagues have this um, uh, very cool research site where they have been monitoring field crickets in the field. So these are small little bugs that live in burrows um, and they have set up cameras looking at each of the burrows and they have a, a, a large lawn that has, I think a couple hundred of these burrows um, that these crickets come back to year after year. And they've been monitoring the same um, population for uh, a bunch of years now. Um, and they've found a way to attach little teeny tags on top of the crickets backs to individually identify wow. them. And they have these cameras running and they also have a citizen science program where you can go, uh, I wish I knew that URL, but basically you can go to their website and, uh, we'll and like help them. You can help them process their data by being like, is there a cricket in this picture or not? Is it sunny or cloudy? And you just like click through this little game. <laughs> and, um, there, so so they've been researching all sorts of questions related to crickets. Um, the welfare question that we're happy to support them asking um, is, can they develop a rough index of uh, cricket welfare? And their hypothesis here is that um, the reflectivity of the exoskeletons could be useful here, where more healthy, happier crickets are more likely to have uh, shinier shells, basically. Um, and there are sensors wow. that can measure this. So um, I think they're trying to correlate that with a bunch of other things that might be welfare indicators. So that's a great example of kind of research that we like to fund in that, um, you know, they have all sorts of resources and expertise that we just don't have and could not build up. Um, so yeah, yeah. really cool to find people who've been studying one area for a long time, who've developed really species specific you know, understandings of what welfare looks like in this context, um, and who have the the capacity to, to push forward these kinds of questions in a um, concrete, specific, promising way that we just could not come up with ourselves. That's super interesting. It's like one of the most interesting research projects I think I've ever heard in my life. It's like super cool. Um, and what are some examples of like things you said they're trying to associate or correlate the welfare or like the reflectivity, whatever, of their exoskeletons? Yeah. What are some things you're looking for in terms of other welfare impact things? I forget the details of this project, um, but I can say generally we we often support projects of this form of like trying to develop a new welfare indicator. Um and the way we do it is you, you kind of try to bootstrap it with other things that you think might be indicators. And it's it's never perfect proof, but um, if a whole bunch of things seem to converge, then it seems more likely that they're measuring the same thing. Um, so you can look at how uh, your proposed welfare indicator, so let's say that's um, shell reflectivity, correlates with things like mortality rates or some like activities that might be indicative of higher welfare. So um, I'm totally making this up now, but it might be the case that, um, that higher <laughs> yeah. welfare crickets like, um, you know, uh, do mating calls more often than than lower welfare crickets or, um, you know, display other sorts of behaviors that are um, that show that they're they're spending more time like looking for food or looking for mates rather than hiding from predators um, or avoiding interactions with um, other members of the same species who might be competitors. Um, uh, so things like that. Yeah, um, and I just want to contrast that with the um, research project that we most recently published a paper on. Um, so this is a paper by Michael Biolu in um, the 
journal Biological Reviews, and it looks at physiological metrics that might be useful as indicators of welfare. So very broad. Um, uh, he has a long background in physiology, and we, we hired him um, specifically to, to help us look at physiological metrics and help us understand them better. So what the paper does is it goes through a bunch of different kinds of metrics that have been used in physiology in other contexts. So um, things like uh, hormones and biomarkers of aging and, um, you know, telomeres is one of those and um, different kinds of cell degradation processes and um, all these different things that have been used in other contexts and then talks about how they might be relevant to not just the physiological stress of an animal or their health, but their actual subjective experience. Like this, this might represent a process that the animal is not liking or that is um, representative of a, of a well-off animal. Um, and for each of them, he goes through how they could be relevant, but also how we don't know and what more research on that might look like. Um, and so it's it's very explicitly um, spelling out research directions for others to follow up on um, and pretty representative of most of the research we do in that it's, it's desk-based research. Um, we're um, not gathering new empirical data ourselves, but we're using this huge trove of data that's already out there um, and um, building on it to see like what other patterns can we find, what other um, directions look promising based on what has been done so far, um, often with different kinds of motivations. You mentioned at the beginning, there's animals that you think you're like, you're fairly sure are sentient, maybe some of the larger vertebrate animals. And there's also animals you're not, you don't think are such as, you know, zooplankton or very small um, animals. I guess, how do you think about that kind of like that sentience trade-off and also the trade-off between often the animals that are maybe less complex biologically, there's just often many, many more of them compared to the more complex, larger animals like vertebrates. So I guess, yeah. How often do you want like establish sentience before researching a particular species or, and I guess we don't even have that research yet. How do you think about this whole kind of question? Sadly, we're often able to dodge that question because there are <laughs> not nearly as many opportunities to support research on invertebrates as we would like. Um, and, um, or even kind of really at, at every level of, of eclectedness, um, like we'd be, uh, we'd be excited to see even more fish research uh, than there is. We'd be excited to see even more sparrow research than there is eagle research. Um, but uh, we funded projects on uh, elephants and orcas, which are uh, like classic charismatic megafauna, um, who are of great interest to conservation and really not that numerous. Um, but that's where the research was happening. That's where we found research teams that were able to get mm. at some of these, uh, what we think are really cutting edge questions, um, working in biological systems that might not be representative of the um, actual like target populations of large scale interventions. Um, so that being said, I, I think we're, we're really not um, digging into the hardest versions of these questions. Um, we're kind of just pushing at the margins of the um, research and funding opportunities that we find. So um, we often try to fund um, invertebrate projects when they come our way. Um, we recently ran a call for proposals specifically on the welfare of fish um, to really try to bring those people out of the woodwork and uh, support them doing their good work. Um, mm. and, and then I guess uh, broadly, I think this is another example of an area where um, 
research can progress in parallel uh, where we have uh, I think there's a, a reasonable likelihood, at least, that many arthropods are sentient. And so we'd like to support um, research on arthropods. And it might turn out that it's uh, worth nothing. Um, but if it's worth something, it could be worth a ton. Um, so we're going to keep some of that going. And in the meantime, we're, we're also going to be funding research on uh, vertebrates and you know, mammals or animals that are we're particularly confident are sentient. And then hopefully some of the things we learn there will be cross-applicable to uh, invertebrates, if it turns out invertebrates are a major focus of interventions in the future. Mm, makes sense. So I guess in, in addition to, I guess there's like the kind of the passive grant making style where you're just kind of applications come in, but also you're a bit more active in that you want, in this case, we have a, bit, a bigger focus on fish. So you do request proposals on fish. And then I guess, is that how you kind of also want to steer the direction of the wild animal welfare community towards these kind of small invertebrates that might be more numerous, but we know less about? Yeah. Uh, big goal of our grant making program is to help um, illustrate the field um, or define a direction we would like to see people go in. Um, and so we often choose themes um, based on their neglectedness uh, and importance um, with the hope of attracting people who are already doing those research. And we'll, um, we'll often reach out to people as well who we think would be good candidates. Um, and then something that I'm quite proud of in our grant making process is that um, we try very hard, one, to just make it a relatively humane experience for the grantees, uh, um, but also to be really collaborative with them. Um, so much more so than I think is common, particularly for large um, grant makers like government grant makers. Um, we'll go back and forth with grantees who we think are, are onto something good, um, but we we're not so sure about their uh, their study design or the metric they've chosen or, or sometimes even um, the the species they've chosen to focus on. Um, and we'll ask them, like, is this something you could change? Have you considered this? Um, and sometimes they'll have, you know, considerations that hadn't occurred to us. Other times they'll uh, be, you know, happy to use a different measure of welfare that we think would be more accurate or probably even a more common ask for us is to add on another metric of welfare so that we can do that bootstrapping and see what the correlations are between them. Um, so, so yeah, the grant making process is always a mix of um, who's out there and what work they're doing already, and then what can we mm. encourage and how can we work together to take that in a even more exciting direction. That's great. It's really helpful to know. Going back to some of the correlations between this work and you're obviously situated within a, a movement that's predominantly focused on farmed animal welfare. Um, do you know if there's any wild animal interventions that compete in cost effectiveness with some of the best farmed animal interventions um, that affect sort of like multiple years of chicken's lives um, that are improved per dollar? My guess is no. Um, and I'm fairly confident in that. Not that I have uh, particularly rigorous evidence. Um, no one has done uh, very rigorous cost-effectiveness evaluations of the in interventions that do exist. Um, but just at sort of you know looking at back of the envelope calculations for those, and then compare that to the really good research that has been done, for example, on um, the benefits to to chickens from corporate campaigns. Um, uh, yeah, it really does look like farmed animal welfare has. Uh, much more cost-effective interventions um, that we can do today. Um, and I think that's a 
really good reason to keep supporting that work. And, and it makes sense intuitively too. It's like the, the system we're working on here is one where humans have like concentrated huge numbers of lives and put them in really terrible conditions. And so kind of anytime you might be able to shift what's being done in any one of these sheds that has 10,000 birds in it, like that's likely to have a, a huge impact. Um, sure. And so I, I think that makes sense. Um, my optimism for wild animal welfare is that for kind of similar intuitive reasons, um, I think there's a very good chance that we'll find interventions that are at least competitive with um, current farmed animal welfare interventions and quite plausibly much more cost-effective for a similar kind of reason um, being able to affect even larger um, populations of animals. Um, and so, um, yeah, this is uh, obviously subject to, to motivated reasoning and uh, not well substantiated, <laughs> but my guess is that funding field building research on wild animal welfare um, is uh, at least cost competitive with um, uh, current factory farming interventions if you take into account the, the long-term effects that I, I hope our work will have. I'm also interested. So you have a visual communication specialist on your team um, and uh, coming from kind of comsy research um, work myself, I'm interested in how important it is for you to try and effectively communicate your work. And I guess the reason for that position specifically um, and what kind of audience is most important for you to engage? Because I'm assuming right now, obviously, there's no focus that you've mentioned of engaging the public on these issues and, and why they're challenging in this sort of niche um, strategy. Um, so yeah, w what is the, the audience that you're looking to engage with that um, kind of specialist work? Our primary audience for most of our work is um, uh, researchers in academia in potentially relevant fields um, who might be interested in, in joining the field, contributing to similar kinds of research. Um, I'd say like most specifically, the kind of most targeted version of this is people who are in um, like animal behavior sciences or ecology um, and who are particularly interested in animal welfare. These are often people who um, are like uncomfortable with the experimental methods that are being used in their lab. Um, we've had several people come right. to us kind of from that direction of like Googling, like how do I make animal welfare better and, and then finding us. <laughs> um, uh, but, but yeah, again, also just more broadly, I think there's a really wide range of um, areas of expertise that can be applied here. Um, and so why do we have a visual communication specialist? Um, because I think we're, we're trying to tell a story. We're trying to make science that doesn't exist in a vacuum. We're trying to make science that has an impact. And um, I'm really grateful that my scientific mentors um, emphasize this a lot. Um, uh, I wouldn't be on Twitter if uh, my first uh, PI didn't force me to. Um, he said, like, sorry, this is just part of science. Like, I know you want to just count prairies. Or you want to count flowers out in the prairie. But, like, because we're counting flowers out in the prairie, you have to take pictures of yourself taking counting flowers and then post that and talk about it. Um, and that's part of yeah, how you get yeah, grant yeah. funding. It's part of how you find research collaborators. It's part of how you influence policymakers. Um, and so I think this is a, a smaller version of that is we, we want science that is um, like going to be read and that is accessible and persuasive when it is. And, um, you know, we think that that operates on a whole bunch of different levels. Obviously doing rigorous, interesting work is part of that. And also putting it on a website that is a uh, pretty you know, easy to use place to be um, is, is another part of that. Um, and, and, you know, and making materials scientists want to use. Um, I, th I think that's one thing that's really exciting about being a nonprofit um, and, you know, 
a small independently operating nonprofit as opposed to a lab within a university is that we're able to build a team that has a really um, diverse set of skills to um, maximize the impact of our research. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate for that. So um, yeah, I was glad to see that uh, that team member on the roster. <laughs> yeah, Jackie's great. Cool. Okay, Cameron, let's say, let's say me also, uh, you, you've heard this episode, you, you've, you've heard, heard all these pretty compelling arguments for why wild animals uh, have lives that are worth caring about. It can be full of suffering. We can do some things to improve their lives or at least try find ways uh, or pe- other people who can um, find these interventions. And then what, what would you recommend for people like myself or others who want to learn more if they want to do something that actually does help wild animals either now or in the future? What is my other like some easy to do things that we can all go home and start getting on with? I think that the easy to do thing is uh, talk about this more. And this is a uncomfortable answer for me to give because I, I feel like raise awareness. I, often I do not find that a, a compelling pitch. Um, uh, <laughs> but I, I, in wild animal welfare, I, I don't think there is an equivalent to veganism in the farmed animal movement where um, veganism is like not a necessary thing to do to contribute to the farmed animal movement, but um, a pretty clearly positive way you can integrate that work into your everyday life. Um with wild animal welfare, given both the uncertainty that exists now and also just the the wildness of these animals, the fact that they might not already be intersecting in your everyday life um, means that you might not be able to impact them directly. Um, but I think there's a ton of value in um, just chewing through some of these questions and uncertainties with, with other people. Um, I have found that I'm often able to persuade people who generally share my values to um, care about this and then to donate to it and support our work. Um, but it always takes at least two long conversations um, because uh, in addition to you know all the specifics, there are just these general big new questions and ideas um, that I hadn't encountered at all until a couple of years ago. Like the, the idea that animals might not always live um, the best lives in the wild. The idea that humans might be able to responsibly and predictably intervene either now or sometime in the near future through more research. Um, The idea that we might have that obligation, um, that uh, conservation, as much as we're trying to help animals, might not fully reflect the interests of animals so far. Um, Mm. uh, This is all wild stuff. So I think um, just... Yeah, like asking other people their their thoughts on that and um, and raising awareness and, and having those initial conversations, I think, makes it um, much easier for, for the movement to grow so that when there is news or progress or other opportunities, um, people have a, a context of ideas to put it in. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think I've, I've encountered when mentioning this, Actually, funnily enough, I, I mentioned the idea of wild animal suffering to my housemate, who's a pretty hardcore climate activist. And she, we, we basically had a fight at like a birthday dinner because <laughs> she was like so offended by some of these ideas. Yeah, and, yeah. And then, and, and then, like like you said, came around to it a little bit, not loads. Um, but I mean, yeah, when you first hear it, it's, it's almost like offensive to some people. And in, in some ways, when you first hear about veganism or the idea of um, farm animal suffering, people often have a really strong first reaction and then maybe come around to it. And I think us farm animal people, I think same as me, I think when I first heard about it, I was like, this is ridiculous, you know, things have gone too far. And then you engage with the stuff, you're like, actually, no, there's some reasonable points. We should think about this. So I agree. This is one of the few areas where I would say 
just talk, talk to people about it is actually quite useful because it's, yeah. it's so nascent. It's so new and there's so many things to uncover and so many biases we have about, like you said, intervening in nature that actually is quite useful to have some of these conversations, especially with already, you know, very committed animal people like farm animal advocates. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. And an open mind to assess when actually, you know, we're all trying our best for animals, of course. And sometimes the flow through effects of those interventions are problematic for other animals in the space. And I think also I've ne- you know, not even considered that in the past, you know, a couple of years ago until um, I started looking into this a little bit further with Animal Ask. And in terms of those flow through effects, like, um, yeah, just remaining open minded, I think, um, is and and like you say, James, just trying to find out as much as you can um is, is always useful. What are your expansion plans for Wild Animal Initiative? We've obviously talked about the numbers, this catastrophically huge issue, and then you say, you know, there's three people on the team. Um, it seems kind of um, yeah, like we should just be plugging a, a ton more money into this area. Um and so, yeah, I would love to know about your thoughts for how Wild Animal Initiative will expand and develop. We definitely have uh, quite a bit room for more funding and plans that we would like to put in motion um, if we can. Um, so last year, our team grew from uh, 11 to, I suppose over the last two years, from 11 to 20 people. Um, and um, we think we like I said, we'd be interested in growing our research team more, um, especially as we want to yeah. contribute more to the academic discourse. Um, and then our uh, grants program, I think the team itself is likely to stay a similar size, but there's definitely room to be giving out more grants. Um, uh, not infinite room there, because we are at some point going to be constrained by the number of really relevant proposals that we get. Um, but I still think, you know, we're currently giving out around um, one and a half million a year. Um, I think there's room for uh, at least another one million there for um, projects that we haven't been able to fund yet. Um, and um, right. potentially another million a year to invest in like longer term institution building programs, like helping uh, universities establish uh, their own like centers or um, professorships dedicated to these research areas. So um, that would be very helpful. Um, And then finally on the um, outreach program, uh, that's our program where we um, present our research at conferences and we host workshops and um, give different kinds of training to researchers and help them find um, other researchers to connect with to pursue research projects um, because wild animal welfare research often requires a, a mix of methods um, that no one person is an expert in, in all of them. Um, that's still, I would say, in relatively early days. Um, and I think over the next year or two, we're likely to um, shift from where we are now, which is like experimenting at a small scale with several different techniques to identifying um, one or two or three things that we think are really some of the most efficient ways to um, you know, attract and support the most number of new researchers. Um, and so I can imagine that scaling up quite a bit soon as well. Great. Yeah, we'll link to um, your website and uh, details on how to donate if you're interested in funding that work also. Definitely. Um, cool. And then I guess moving on to the closing questions, because um, even though this is a longer episode, it's still not enough to cover everything uh, in the adequate <laughs> depth. Um, but yeah, I, I guess maybe just one bit of news you are excited or grateful about recently in the maybe in the animal world, maybe outside the animal world. Someone sent me a TikTok video uh, of 
that was based on the premise of memes dancing with each other to communicate. Um, and I don't need to go into the whole video. It was a goofy, dumb thing, but um, I thought it was funny. It, it wasn't really about bees, but it was, it was just based on this. The premise was this kind of fun fact that now I guess many people are supposed to know. Um, and uh, it just, yeah, really like warmed my heart and made me think that like how our society considers invertebrates could already be changing. Like it's um, uh, TikTok to the rescue. Exactly. <laughs> um, and and it gave, gave me uh, a bit of a vision of what that might look like, you know, like a, I think especially animal advocates often get um, frustrated at how hard it is for some people to get on board with chicken welfare or fish welfare. It's like, it's like, well, how could they ever care about ants? It's like, well, you know, you like learn fun facts about ants and they communicate this way. And then you imagine how weird it would be if humans did that. And then you do a TikTok video about that. And like, I don't know, it, it can happen, I think. Chop, chop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, Love yeah, it. I, I just think I, I, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I do have a lot of optimism for um, how our society might progress and grow to be even more altruistic than it is now. And do you have any uh, media recommendations? So you've talked about some uh, articles that we'll reference in the notes, but any uh, blog posts or books or videos that you'd recommend? I think a bunch of our blog posts are pretty cool and we'll definitely put those in the notes. Um, For books, I'll recommend An Immense World by Ed Young. Um, He's a really great science writer and it's about um, the different ways that animals experience the world through their senses. and so each chapter is dedicated to a sense like sight or smell. Um, and oh, uh, yeah, it talks about how how differently animals perceive that and the physiological mechanisms. And it's just it's an incredible level of detail and also like ease and lightness of reading. Um, and, and also like hits a particularly sweet spot for me that is hard to find. It's like a, a way to think about animals a lot and learn about animals a lot without focusing on the worst parts of it or the, or the problems like really just coming back to that place of like wonder um and appreciation um but also in a, in a way that doesn't uh uh like romanticize them or like force them into these narratives of like being part of an ecosystem but, like still operating very much at the individual level like this is how this beetle knows where wildfires are and this is what it might be like to be this kind of beetle nice mm, it's very cool and then one more book i um want to recommend is my um, favorite fiction book I've read recently. It's called Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. It's a science fiction book um, basically about a uh, race of spiders that is like bioengineered to become super intelligent and form their own civilization. And so it is uh, great on so many levels. On on the science fiction level, you know, it's, it's fun to have some science fiction that's like not just about humans wearing uh, alien masks, but like an actually fundamentally very different society. Um, and you just really get the sense that um, spider uh, like physiology and behavior really drove a lot of this story and world building that it was not like working backwards, like, okay, like how do I replace aliens with a different kind of looking alien? It's mm. like, actually, like, what are spiders like? Okay, well, like the, the females are bigger than the males and they often like cannibalize them. So like, what would that mean? So at later stages in the society, like men's rights, like campaigns are around like anti-cannibalism initiatives. And um, uh, yeah, just, nice. it's, yeah, really, really fun. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think a cool example of trying to get out of our, our own mindset and look at the world through other animals' eyes. Mm. Uh, I'll second that book. I read that as well. And it's like one of my favorite sci-fi books, probably like of recent times or, or for a while. Yeah. I'd recommend it. Amazing read. Um, yeah. Just plus one to that. 
Cool. And then maybe final question. How can people get uh, involved in your work? Where can, where can they find you online or otherwise? And yeah, anything you want to plug? Our website is wildanimalinitiative.org. Um, uh, to get involved, of course, you can always um, donate. And um, if you're interested in uh, pursuing research or you know anyone who might be, um, uh, I'd love for you to reach out. Um, uh, we have, for those who are currently doing research, we have a online researcher community, which is essentially a, a listserv where we pass along opportunities and people can get access to a database of other people in our network and um, connect with each other. Um, we also have uh, a Twitter account, which um, uh, I think it's going to be a little less active in the next couple months, but uh, joining up after that and keep an eye out for Wild Animal Welfare Wednesdays. Is that what we call it? <laughs> we have a, a str <laughs> string nice. of posts every Wednesday looking at uh, a recent paper related to wild animal welfare and kind of um, teasing apart what it finds and, and how it relates to the field. Very cool. It's like the Shrimp Welfare Project. They have like the Shrimp Fact of the Week as well yep. on LinkedIn. Yep. So it's like yep. a similar yeah. kind of vibe. I like it. Yeah. Oh, and I suppose you can also <laughs> go to um, the less technical stuff, wildanimalinitiative.org slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. Um, and I'm someone who doesn't read a lot of newsletters. And so I try quite hard to make these newsletters short and to the point. Um, and several people have said they appreciate that. So I would like to think, if you don't like, even if you don't like newsletters, this is a relatively good way to stay in the loop. <laughs> well, thanks for your patience, Cameron. That's been such an insightful um, episode. I think I've certainly learned a lot about a topic that I didn't know tons about. It's obviously very technical. So um, yeah, I really appreciate you diving in and um, explaining it all to us in a really compelling way that I think is is very engaging and convincing of the, the topic of, of Wild Animal Initiative. Um, so yeah, just thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. And I want to say too, just um, such an honor to have received so much support from the farm to animal welfare community, because you can easily imagine these siloing off into different things, but I see them as highly integrated. I come from farm to animal advocacy myself. And um, yeah, I really appreciate um, uh, yeah, all, all the support um, this movement has, has been given to this weird new branch. <laughs> and I uh, <laughs> hope we'll have more to report soon on what exactly we can do to help wild animals. Nice. nice. Well, we, we always love weird new branches. So thanks for doing all the amazing work. Yeah. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah. Thank you.